Okay, how are we doing today? Many? Yes. Oh my goodness. A lot. Okay, very good. So, can you hide your clock? <laughs> First question. In the hall, the Seamus Stone reads 1987 to 2530. Why is there an expiry date? Well, we have to get the end of the world sometimes. No, 2530, not the end of the world, 2530 is 1987 in the Buddhist era. It's pretty easy to work out the difference between the Roman era, 1987, you had 543. And 543 plus 1987 makes 2530. So it's a 2530 in the Buddhist era. That's why we put it on the Sima Stone. There's one other thing about 543. This one is AD. In 543 AD, uh, the Pope at the time was a Pope Vigilius. And uh, no, that's in I think Constantinople. Uh, no, today's um, what's it called today? Istanbul, yeah. And anyway, that he was threatened by the Emperor Justinian. If you don't refute the belief in reincarnation, then I'll put you in jail. It was the emperor had the power over the Pope. And the emperor, uh, the the pope, refused. So the emperor put him in jail for a year. Now those jails are not the same as the jails in Australia or in Singapore. I visited Changi Prison, and it's much much softer than the jails in uh, Byzantium, what it was called in that time. They were really tough. And after 12 months in jail, even the Pope said, okay, he recanted. And so they had a a big ecumenical council, and there they voted to make the belief in reincarnation a heresy. So before, everyone believed in reincarnation. And many people in the, even in the Christian church, it was part of their, their belief system. It's only later on. And it started in 543 AD. Don't know what's special about 543, but anyway. Thank you for your kind teachings. How, are, how do we prepare our loved ones for our death and our loved ones' death? Thank you. It's very easy for you. It's, it's like, for example, my example. You know, many people care about me, so what I'm going to do I've got a cave, and you've been in there. It's got two doors, and you can't get in. So when I die, I'm just going to stay in my cave, and you don't know I'm dead. You might just be in, in a deep jhana. So then you just leave me. Then I'll be my mausoleum as well. Why are you making a face? It's nice to die like that in your own cave. It's very cheap. You don't have to waste any money. <laughs> but no. When you die, why can't I do that? I'd love to do that. You know why I can't do that? Because I do not own my body.
It doesn't belong to me. It belongs more to you than it does to me. And because of that, I just got to keep it going no matter what. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. So anyway, so how do you prepare for your uh, loved ones for your own death? Your loved ones, if they really loved you, they would let you go. That's this beautiful teaching. The greatest act of love is to let someone go. And this was uh, Jenny and, I think it was Dave, this, she was an Australian nurse, um, no, Steve, I think, and Steve was an American, he was a white water rafter. And they started this lovely company, you know, where they would advertise and they would take all these adventurous, you know, Australians or whoever, to some of the most wonderful places in the world to go white water rafting. And he loved the, the job and so did his wife Jenny and their company was doing really well until he got cancer. He was, only, he was young and fit, maybe in his 30s, but he got a very bad cancer and you know, they asked me to come around and try and counsel him. It was too late because he was on his, uh, his way into death. So I would go as often as I could. In those days I had far more time. And so I, I actually used that time to go visit people like that. So I was in, in, in East Fremantle where this was happening. So I used to go to the little apartment and go through some chanting, chat to him. But he got sort of weaker and weaker, more and more frail, same thing. And, but it was weird that he wasn't dying. She expected him to die any day. I think a week went past and he hadn't died at all. And then, you know, when such things happen, I told, not him, but I told his wife, Jenny, have you given your husband permission to die yet? She's a very wise woman. She jumped on the bed, I, I will never forget this, jumped on the bed, and, this, and the husband is so frail, and she hugged him so gently. And she squeezed him, she'd probably break a few bones. But she hugged him so gently and said, darling, I give you permission to die. Don't keep on trying to stay alive for me. I don't want you to suffer, so. When he was given permission to die, he died that night. She understood the psychology. If you were dying, and that was you in that bed, you try your hardest to cry and keep alive so the people you love so much don't suffer, even though it causes you to suffer. The last thing that Steve wanted to do was to die. Otherwise, I was so upset his wife. Once he had permission from his wife to die, then he could die peacefully. That's what he did. And I always remember that funeral service because that was one of the best funeral services which I ever conducted. I told them that there's loopholes in the law. You can make your own coffin. You don't have to buy one from the shop. And so they made this this coffin like shaped like a boat. It was a white water raft with a couple of paddles on top. The problem was they made it out of jarret wood and it weighed a ton. And it was so heavy 
that when they put it on that conveyor belt to go through the, the window, the engine of the, or the, the motor of the conveyor belt was really struggling. So the coffin only went halfway through and then the glass door just slammed against the coffin. And it couldn't go anywhere. And I remember the funeral director's face. Oh, he was almost, a, he was almost the next person to go in a coffin. Because <laughs> <laughs> when it goes wrong, poor funeral director, but then what happened next? Jenny, the wife, she jumped onto the conveyor belt and started pushing. <laughs> and all the friends, you know, he was young as Steve, so they were in the 30s or 40s and stuff. And they said, you want to get rid of him that much? <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing started laughing, people laughing, and somebody said, yes, yeah, Steve, well, the day he got his first car, he crashed it on the first ride. Now he's done the same to his coffee. <laughs> and I always remembered that. It was a funeral with such sort of such laughter in a, in a very beautiful way. And it was, it was a gorgeous funeral. But the meaning behind that, if you do have a loved one, and you know they're sort of dying, they're, you know, they're really old and they're sick, there's no real cure for them, no real hope, please go and tell them, you have our permission to die. Because then that actually lets them die with freedom. And you know, you know you're going to be upset when they die, but look, I, I'd be more upset if you keep carrying on like this and suffering so much. And how do you prepare for your own death? Well, that's really simple. One of the things is try and die privately. I've seen this many times and I'm sure you have as well. You're in the hospital and all these loved ones are around you and they say, please don't go towards the light, please stay here a bit longer, please. And imagine the emotional burden that is. You've got your own body which is hurting and dying, and now you've got to deal with your, your relations trauma. So please, Al, if you really love that person, again, let them go. And that's one of the reasons why so often that the family around the loved one and they're closer, they can die any moment, but they keep on breathing. And then you say, well, you know, we've been here a couple of hours, they haven't expired yet. You go for, you know, a snack or a cup of coffee or something. And when you're out of the room, that's when they die. Dying is a very personal experience. And sometimes other people's emotions makes it much worse. So that's how you prepare for other people's death as well. Dear Ajahn, I think I told you about the, that Chinese funeral I did, didn't I? I think I mentioned that at lunchtime. There was a guy, an elderly, I think I did this morning, didn't I? The elderly guy from China? Okay, one of the elderly guys from China, a big businessman, he was dying in Royal Perth Hospital in the ICU, and I got the call, the family were desperate to get someone to do some final chanting for him. So I stopped what I was doing and went into the Royal Perth, into the ICU, went into the room. 
you only allowed one or two people in there, so I went there by my, in the room by myself. And in the waiting room was all his family members, you know, from Taiwan, from Hong Kong. Uh, I don't know exactly where they were from, but these were businessmen too. And they, uh, they all came in to, uh, to Perth, you know, it's the last time to, to um, send their family member off. And apparently, I found out afterwards, they'd even arranged a funeral service already. And I go in there. I do my chanting. And he got better. He was in a coma, he opened his eyes. And that's one of the reasons why. When I told the family, oh, I think he's going to survive now. They were really upset. They never gave me any young power or any donation at all. <laughs> The reason was, was because you know, they expected him to die and they never told me, because I was rushing in to get there as soon as I could. They never told me. They wanted me to give the chanting to die peacefully. And I did the chanting to get better. And it was powerful. So he got better. They never talked to me again. <laughs> they had to they arrange the funeral, they had to cancel the funeral fly back to Taiwan or mainland China, Hong Kong, wherever it was, and then they had to come back in six months when he died properly. So I didn't do a very good... Did I do a good thing there? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. I understand Anicca, or so I think, the nimitta will also arise and cease. If you get a nimitta and enter first age of jhana and if all conditions are okay when you meditate again, is it starting from zero? Is there an advantage for your practice? Of course it's not starting from zero. You may think that, oh, I got it right this first time but I won't get it right again. The mind learns. It's like you have an inclination towards those states of peace. It's like a tree leaning to the west now when it loses its uh, grounding, will fall to the west. You have an inclination there. And also that some of the way the Buddha taught it, that, you know, if you know what nimittas are, when the first sign of a nimitta comes, you leap towards it. The Pali was pakhandati. It's like the mind, ah, oh, there's nimitta over there. If tomorrow morning, sort of for breakfast, you know, I said, oh, someone's brought some durian from the monastery. There's only f five or six pieces. Would you actually leap towards that durian to get there first? <laughs> <laughs> I know some Singaporeans love durian. <clears throat> I still remember just standing in Kedang Road when we used to go back there for the Buddhist fellowship. There used to be a big durian store. No matter what time I, I was driven back, you know, to go to the BF quarters when it was down there, there was always people, every time of night, just eating durian. But you know the durian story over here? That was, I think, in Melbourne Airport. No, Melbourne University. They had to close down one of the student lodgings because they thought there was a terrorist attack there. <laughs> <laughs> there was this really sort of gaseous smell coming out. And they, the, I think the SWAT team, whatever they call it, came, you know, in the... So they thought it was like a salmon gas or something. And so they had to close that part of the university down 
and all these people in these hazmat suits came in there trying to check out you know, where this terrorist attack was coming from. They found it in a student's locker. A piece of jewelry closed down the whole university. <laughs> oh, this is a student accommodation. Anyway, uh, so there is an advantage there. If you have achieved or experienced a nimitta or a jhana before, it's like your mind knows. It kind of remembers just what was really beautiful and peaceful and wonderful. And you incline towards it. You get drawn towards it. It takes away a lot of the fear when you know just how wonderful that is. Of course you get an advantage. It's also what I was saying that when you die and you see that beautiful light when you die, if you experience that when you've been meditating, it makes it much easier to die and get a really great rebirth or no rebirth. That's why this um, Dharma talk today about nimittas, I also just call it Dying 101, the course, how to die properly. You don't get afraid. You don't sort of start thinking and noting. And you just make your mind silent and peaceful and allow that nimitta to envelop your, you to sink into it. I have heard that morning time is the best for meditation. However, for me, even if I sleep well, I feel most sloth and torpor early morning. So I don't do the morning meditation. Should I try harder or let it go? Just let it go. That's the advantage of doing a retreat in the cave. I haven't got a clue whether it's morning or afternoon. <laughs> There's no windows in that cave. So what is time anyway? Sometimes you get a pris- become a prisoner of time. You think, oh, I can't meditate in the morning, I can't meditate in the evening. You know, sometimes you can't meditate because you're really tired. Yeah, I think you do know I'm rebellious. People think I'm soft. When I want to, I can have a very strong mind. So a few times, you know, you're, sort of, you're really tired, you get back to your room, and you just want to rest. And I say, no, I'm going to meditate. It's weird. When I do that, you can sit down and have some marvellous meditations. It's as if, like, sometimes my body is a bit deceptive, and my mind knows it has more power. So you get sleepy in the early mornings, uh, it's not morning time, it's not the best time for meditation. You know what the best time for meditation is? Now, yes. What's the worst time for meditation? Later. <laughs> Later is the worst time for meditation. Now is the best time for meditation. So be free of time. I'm saying that because sometimes when I shouldn't really have any energy, I get some of the best meditations. And I have all the energy. You, know, you had a really good sleep, had a good cup of tea, you know, and then you start meditating, oh, this is going to be a good meditation. And it doesn't work. So there is no good time or bad time, except now is the best time, and later is the worst time. Should I try harder? No, never try harder. Just let go harder. Oh no, let go, let go softer. Could you teach us about the dedication of merits? Can we dedicate merits to people who are still alive? That's more like spreading metta to people who are alive, giving them your best wishes. 
And I say, yes, you can do that. And you can also dedicate met- merits or give uh, loving kindness even to your car. And it gets not stuck in traffic, but it gets, what is it? Um, uh, it's not running properly. You get stuck. It doesn't work. I told that story of just um, opening the car boot and getting poor Veronica to promise to be a bikuni if I could do it. Half an hour, though. You know that story? I did tell one, yeah. And it works. It's amazing just, you know, if you have merits and you've got a powerful mind, it's amazing what you can do. And you can ask Ajahn Bamali about this story. This is one of the, the things... He's very dubious about when I start talking about ghosts and heavenly beings and stuff. But he says this one actually worked because he was there at the time. And that was our 30th anniversary of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. How many of you were there for that? No, I was. So... I think Ajahn Jakro had already gone, and we had our 30th anniversary of our Buddhist society. And our president at that time was, was Sol. And he was such a positive influence. And he used to be a monk, but now he was a president. And so he said, we should do something, our Buddhist society. So we, we said, yeah, but let's not just do something small, let's really go for it. You know, just to show that Buddhism has arrived in Perth. So, and everything sort of was turning out in our favour. They had this venue, Supreme Court Gardens, right in the centre of the city. And it was free that day. Waysack was on a Sunday. And so, the real full moon would be out. And people were available to come. We had the Thai ambassador was there. Again, Jeff Gallup was the premier. He came along. He said he was coming, but there was a problem. The weather. In the, new, in the weather forecast, it was a severe weather, weather event. It was coming, coming to hit the centre of Perth at 7 o'clock when we were going to start our ceremony. And so even in the morning... We got up and got in the cars. So actually, it wasn't just after the, the morning to go come into Perth. It was raining. It rained all day. It never stopped. We put the tents up, electricity and stuff. And in the afternoon, when it came closer to the time of the event, first of all, um, it was one of the. Who was it? Is uh, this fellow, he used to be a sailor. He's retired now, that's Brian Creek. And he, he took me by the hand and pulled me aside. He said, Ajahn Brahm, I've been looking at the, the meteorological forecast. I know these things. You know, I was a, a sailor, and these things can really just kill you. There is a big storm coming, and it's going to hit right here at 7 o'clock. You have to cancel. I said, no. And then there was a monk as well. 
who said, Ajahn Brahm, we're getting embarrassed by you. You have to cancel. There's no problem with cancelling. I said, no. The Premier's office called. Are you cancelling? No. And it's pouring down with rain. Three times he called. Three times I refused to cancel. Some of the people in our Buddhist society should have arrested me. The mad monk. But no. This was a full moon night, Waisak, our 30th anniversary. And we arranged everything, it was still pouring down with rain. The people who helped out there, I just hold my hands up to them. They were getting soaked, but they prepared everything. And then I remember just about quarter to six, quarter to seven, sorry, about 15 or 20 minutes before we were due to start, one of the Burmese ladies. If you know Cherry, Cherry Jackson, she works over in Bodhinyana, in, uh, in Dhammaloka. It was her mum. She was helping out to... She ran into the VIP, VIP tent, which I was helping uh, set up. And she was crying. Ajahn Bam, you have to come outside. And I, th- I thought, honestly, oh no, what next? And somebody electrocuted themselves or some terrible things happened. Because <laughs> she was crying, she never usually does that. And anyway, she didn't, there was nobody hurt, she just put her hand up into the sky. And the full moon had came out, come out. The clouds had parted. And around that Supreme Court gardens, there was just no, rains at, no rain at all. And to see that was like a miracle. I just remember there was a TV crew where, you know, videoing the event and they kept on saying, this is weird. This is weird. And we did the whole ceremony. And at the end of which, after we finished, it poured down with rain. The Supreme Court gardens flooded. The freeway was closed under the water. It was a severe weather event. But it stopped for three or four hours for us to do the ceremony. I remember, you know, from that, uh, Dr. Gallup, who was the the premier at the time, was very impressed. And so were the people who actually hired out the tents and all the stages and stuff. Because one of the organizers responsible for that so showed me their email. He said, it's amazing you managed to do that ceremony. He said, and this was a head, head guy at the, I think, Reese High, it was called. We haven't heard of Ajahn Brahm before, but can you please ask him who's going to win the horse racing today? <laughs> <laughs> and all I did, you can check this out with Ajahn Bamali, he was there. All I did was in the morning, before I left, I was really chanting. You know, really full-on chanting. Sometimes you give this extra energy. And you call on the heavenly beings. Now, you know, don't ask them often, but this was a legitimate request. Can we please celebrate Waysak? And they obliged. And something about that, I was confident that it was going to stop. And it did. So if you want to know miracles, I mean, that was one. 
many people who lived to the east, the west, the north and the south didn't come. And they were surprised we could hold a ceremony. You hold a ceremony, there were trees coming down in our suburb. And it was really heavy rain. How could you hold that ceremony? Did you get wet? No. Actually, I've got to be honest, there was a slight um, shower for about one or two minutes. It wasn't heavy. We still managed to, to do that. I don't know why, but you know, that when you see what's possible and what actually happens, that again is one of those things which gives me goosebumps. I take no responsibility for it. That's the heavenly beings helping out on a really good event. Anyway, I sometimes get sort of excited by stuff like that, especially when you've been right in the middle of it and it works. Why is it easy to be kind to others, yet, yet so difficult to be kind to ourselves? Is it due to ego? Yes, but it's also, you know more about yourself than you know about others. And the way, way to be kind is, the old story, the two bad bricks. You know your two bad bricks much more than uh, other people that you see their bad bricks. You know, we get ashamed of revealing just that we're not perfect. And that's one of the reasons why it's easier to be kind to others because you can't see their bad bricks. But being kind to oneself, you know all your faults and you think you don't deserve it. Please, you do deserve it. You do deserve kindness. So can you say with me, I'm going to brainwash you now, I, I deserve Happiness. <laughs> so you heard it from me. Uh, do you trust me? Okay, then you can be happy. It's actually it's as simple as that. If so, how do I cultivate non-self why I'm still so far away from jhana? How you can cultivate non-self? Again, please interrupt me if I've done the simile before, the simile of being a visitor. I, did I do that? Yeah? No? Okay. So, I, I have lots of jobs. One of my jobs, believe it or not, is the chairperson of the Anukampa Bhikkhuni Trust. So actually, technically, I'm your boss. <laughs> Only technically. <laughs> oh yes, but the, the chairman has the responsibilities legally. But anyway. <laughs> so anyway. Um, so, and also, I'm a spiritual director of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. So in the Buddhist Society of Western Australia premises now. <laughs> No, you don't do stuff like that. So, I have all these responsibilities. I'm also, I think, one of the patrons of the Buddhist Fellowship, aren't I? Spiritual patron. Spiritual patron, yeah. And I used to be on the board of trustees of um, Brahm Center. You made me sign my membership away a couple of days ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mind. It doesn't make much difference. And I've got all sorts of other... Uh, roles, but it can sometimes be very busy. 
So especially when I would go into Nolamara on the weekend and teach and counsel and be on committees and stuff. So when I came back on a Sunday evening, and you, Monday morning, then you had to face all the problems of Bodhinyana Monastery and Jhana Grove. And that was just like seven days a week work. And then what happened was I was walking with somebody in Bodhinyana Monastery, a, a visitor, a guest, and they said, this is a beautiful monastery. You're so lucky to live here. And I said, what? This is not beautiful. This is my workplace. There's so many monks misbehaving. There's so many <laughs> cars need fixing because of the monks misbehaving. <laughs> There's so much work that the plumbing needs to be fixed. I've got to talk about this. There's so many emails to do. Because Bodhinyana Monastery was my place of work. And then I realized there's something not wrong with Bodhinyana Monastery, there's something wrong with me. And then I started uh, contemplating, why do people who visit say such a beautiful place? But if you live there, you can't appreciate the beauty. As one of the other monks once told me, you have much better, much better meditation in other persons' monasteries than in your own. Because in your own, you've got responsibility. Someone else's, you haven't. So those things let me start practicing my visitor strategy. On Monday mornings, in Bodhinyana Monastery, I decided on Monday mornings I wouldn't be the abbot, spiritual director or anything. I'd be a visitor. I just role-played, pretended. So if anybody asked me, they say, oh, one of the monks is really sick, we have to call an ambulance. I say, you do it. I'm only a visitor today. If somebody said, the electricity is um, stuffed, it's an outage. I say, I'm only a visitor. If somebody said, that, what else could they do? The, the, the leaves need, uh, need raking up, there's a lot of dirt somewhere, somebody's come and they want to ask you some questions about Buddhism. I say, I'm only visiting today, I'm not the abbot. I did that on purpose. Because visitors have no responsibilities. And once I abrogated my responsibilities, only for a morning, I could actually then, I could see the monastery was beautiful and quiet and peaceful. I could not see it when I was an owner. Only when I was a visitor. Like food. If you have to cook the food yourself, and wash up afterwards, you don't appreciate it so much. If you go to a top restaurant, if you go to a top restaurant anywhere, how many times do you have to wash up after you've eaten? Zero. It's somebody else's restaurant. Your job is just to eat and enjoy. And by meaning a visitor, I was saying I don't own anything. It's not Ajahn Brahm's monastery, it's not Ajahn Brahm's retreat center. It's not even Ajahn Brahm's cave. I know that very well because many of you have visited there on Saturday. I don't know who that cave belongs to. Does it really belong to me? If it belongs to me, then I'll be concerned. When I don't own it, I can be free. 
And I do the same with my body. I'm not the owner of the body, I'm only a visitor. I visited for quite a few years. I look after it, care for it, but I don't own it. So if something goes wrong, I looked after it, that's the best you can do. You're not worried about death. But then you get to your mind. Do you own your mind? Do you own your nimittas, your jhanas? We said Atom Bomb can't enter jhana. I have to disappear and then those things happen. I don't own anything. That's why I can let go. So that's one of the great ways of letting go, of a sense of self. It's what the Buddha said, where there's a sense of self, there is a sense of what belongs to a self. Your ownership. That's why you can't let go. But when the sense of self vanishes, like you're just a visitor, not an owner, then you're far more free. Do you own your meditation? You think you do, I've got jhana now. The problem was, I've got whatever. You haven't got anything. I, you know, I used to be really smart in quantum physics, you know, pure mathematics, all that sort of stuff. You give me a test now and I'll fail. It's all disappeared, it's been forgotten. So my, my mind is much more free. So anyway, that's how you one way of cultivating non-self. Don't own anything. Thank you, Ajahn, for being so inspiring. My question is, if pleasure from sensual pleasure is P-I-S-S was it um, dash Y and the pleasures of jhanas is hard and needs seclusion what pleasures can we enjoy as lay people you can enjoy the pleasure of uh, living at jhana grove for a week of having a nice breakfast keep things simple enjoy that it's the pursuit of pleasure which is the problem and after a while Enjoy the Q&A, the Dhamma talks, the kindness of one another. You're not allowed to speak. You're not supposed to, but no one keeps those rules. <laughs> but when you do pass one another, you can always smile. Smiling is not breaking the noble silence. It's a lovely thing to do, to smile at somebody. This is like you're giving them some loving kindness. How do we tell if the images that appear in meditation are due to nimittas, imaginations, dreams, or supernatural beings inserting thoughts? Really, do you think supernatural beings are really interested in you? <laughs> Haven't got supernatural beings something better to do? Usually you say, of course they have. It's not supernatural beings. And uh, the images that appear in meditation, if they're beautiful and they're peaceful, then they're great. You can take them into limiters. If they're ugly and scary, like that monster I was telling you about, instead of just messing about with the monster, you can actually see one part of that monster which is beautiful. And if you can, then you can focus on that, and the whole thing becomes gorgeous. 
on the outside or part of it may be uh, repulsive but even in the repulsive there's always a part of it which is attractive beautiful, delightful that's what you focus on and that means doesn't matter what image it is you can turn it into a, a beautiful deep meditation a jhana First year, we'd like to say thank you for giving us your precious time, teaching us out of compassion. I don't own my time. Isn't that wonderful? If you don't own anything, then you don't, it's not really sharing, it's just, actually, I suppose it is sharing, that's the best word. We just share our time together. I've got to be somewhere, so I just happen to be here. It's not a big deal. Question, I can't help but be quite serious. How? Question, I can't help but be quite serious. How can even here bring up joy? Thank you. So that's one of the reasons why I tell sort of jokes. I tell those jokes uh, just to get you to stop being so serious. And sometimes the jokes are so funny, you can't help but laugh. Did I tell the story about the... I, I told it to a few people at lunchtime. About the, uh, the, boy, about the uh, mum who went to her son's bedroom to try and get him up, to get up to go to school. So his mother had really great trouble getting her son up in the morning. So this one morning she went to her son's bedroom. He was still in bed. Son, it's time to go to school. And the son said, why? I hate school. But you must go. Mum, the teachers don't like me. The other pupils don't like me. I hate school. But you have to go. Give me one good reason why, Mum. And said, the one good reason why you must go to school, son, is because you're the principal. So I've got you laughing. So how can you be so serious? Anyway, I experienced some wonderful feelings during meditation this week. I am focusing on cultivating metta and feelings of delight. However, my dreams at night can become more intense, filled with strong emotions. Today I woke up feeling deep shame that I might be a very bad monster. Monsters are not allowed into Jhana Grove. You cannot be a bad monster. Even if you did come in and you were a bad monster, what would I say? Welcome. Thank you for coming. The door of my... Oh, I can't say my name, can I? I'm a visitor. The door of Jhana Grove is open and welcome. Please come in. Unconditional loving kindness. And the monster vanishes. And that's actually very powerful and very deep. A monster is someone you're afraid of. But when I, you, know, you show you love, compassion, being welcome, and not being discriminated against, then the monster thing vanishes. You become a human being who's got friends. Welcome, monster. And that's one of the reasons why I tried to make Jhana Grove, comfortable for everybody. 
And you've got your own room, you can just go and hide in there and just be a monster in there if you wish. <laughs> but you're welcome. <laughs> and you've got your own ensuite, so it's amazing just how everybody's treated kindly. And if you do feel like a monster one day because things are really happening for you and you feel terrible, it's amazing how all the people in your own cottage, the people you sit next to uh, when you are having a meal, how they can have these wonderful acts of kindness. They've been watching you, everyone's watching each other, and they know what you like to eat. And sometimes maybe only one banana left, and they actually take it and give it to you. It's beautiful when you have those bits of sharing. So if you see anyone here, you find out what they like, the type of food they like, and if you know that they feel really miserable, give them some more of that. It's not the food which is important, it's your kindness. How in my dreams and I become more intense, filled with strong emotions. Today I woke up feeling deep shame. I was a monster. Does this happen when meditating a lot? Why? How can I make use of it? This easy. It's just sometimes how you make use of it is keep a sort of little diary next to your bed and write down those dreams. Mr. Steven Spielberg would be very interested <laughs> in actually turning them into a horror movie and he'd get more extra income. But because I suggested that, please remember 10% goes to Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes when you have dreams, please laugh at those dreams. And the monsters, you know, they, they get humiliated when you laugh at them, you're not scared of them. You can smile at them, be kind to them. So that's how to deal with them. The other thing is, if you do have bad dreams, you can always actually, as you go to bed at night, you know, you're laying in your pillow, please do a little bit of loving kindness meditation, it does work. You know, seriously, you know, may I be happy and well. May all beings be happy and well. And then, just may I have no bad dreams. Suggest that to yourself. Brainwashing works. You can always brainwash yourself. It's marvelous when that works. When I meditate, I keep drooling. How to keep my mouth closed when I relax? My mouth opens, thank you very much. That sometimes that happens, you get too much saliva coming up in your mouth. So what we can use, the dentist use it, they put this little cool out. <laughs> <coughs> when you're meditating. <laughs> you know sometimes that, that happens to people, when they're worried about it, then it happens. You don't worry about it at all. And if it happens, it happens so rarely. It's never a problem. So don't worry about it. It's your saliva, it doesn't drip on anybody else. <laughs> and there is a laundry here where you can wash your clothes. So what's the problem? So sometimes people are afraid, you know, what people think of you. Oh, you see, the nun is drooling. Ugh, the monk is crying. Ugh. You know that I told a few people that story. This this one guy came to see me in interviews some years ago, and he was crying during his meditation. And he said, what's going on? I've never cried like this before. What's happening? 
straight away, I only tell the stories when I say something wise. If I say something stupid, I usually don't tell them. <laughs> and I said, when was the last time you cried? And he went quiet, and he said, when I was about 13. He was an Australian, and my dad told me, Australian men don't cry. And the next thing I said to him, seriously, I said, you've got a lot of crying to catch up with. <laughs> so go in there, in the hall, and when you meditate, cry as much as you want. And when he had that permission, he just cried. A lot of the retreat, he was a single man, he was always looking for a partner, and you wouldn't believe the amount of offers he got from the, the ladies who were on the retreat, at the end of the retreat. Forget about being a tough guy, being a soft guy, someone who needs another person in their life and, oh, that was really attractive. He said, that was really good. <laughs> I'll just say what he said. So, when you keep drooling, well, that's another thing, but anyway. <laughs> I, don't many, I don't think you get many offers. <laughs> but it's probably you're thinking about food all the day. Some who have a near-death experience claim they saw their loved ones on the other side, while some saw Buddha, Kuan Yin, or Jesus. How does deep meditation help us understand what they saw? How they, what they saw is these nimittas. And these nimittas, what it actually is, is a reflection of you. But how do you interpret that? These nimittas, sometimes like a sun, you probably see it like a sun now, because I've told you about that. that particular way of looking. But this is a mind object and you perceive it a lot of how you expect to perceive it. Something powerful. You have disappeared when those things happen. Now Ajahn Brahm can't enter John. Ajahn Brahm has to disappear first. You have to disappear too. So you know this is not you but something powerful and beautiful and blissful. I did mention that such feelings are sometimes interpreted as pure love bliss, supernatural power, you're not part of it. You're not there. The sense of self has disappeared. So how would you interpret that? What's the most supernatural image you have you know, in your life or in your uh, spiritual life, your religion? And that's why people think this must be Jesus. This must be Kuan Yin. This must be, and those who are true atheists, it's Uncle George. He was a really good man. The thing it is, is you. Not Jesus, not Kuan Yin. Not sort of Krishna or anybody, but it's you. You're seeing a reflection of yourself and you interpret it with a framework which you think, oh, must happen. But when you learn Buddhism, you realize it's not Jesus or Buddha or anybody. It's actually you you're seeing. You're Chitta. Not really you, but it's a much closer to you than your body. And so that's one of the reasons why people interpret it in all those different ways. Ajahn, are there any Arahats living in the world today? I said, yes, please tell us about them. No. <laughs> but it's really hard to know for sure who is an Arahat. I was nine years with Ajahn Chah 
And I say the thing which really impressed me, not his wisdom, yeah, he could do psychic powers and stuff, especially read minds and the wisdom and never being upset. But the thing which really impressed me was when I, only once he asked me to go in his private quarters to get something from his room. And there's hardly anything in his room. And by this time he was really famous. He could have anything in his room. And he had so many supporters who were millionaires. But then he went up there and there was just a grass mat and a wooden pillow. Not even a, a soft pillow and a spare robe, and that's about it. And that, I don't know why, that really said, wow. A person who can have lots has so little, deliberately. That really impressed me. Dear Ajahn, does rebirth happen right after one's death? If not, what happens during the interval? Even death is not a moment. If you've ever been with people who have died and just been watching them, death is a process. It's one of the reasons why you ask a doctor, when, ex when exactly did my mother die? And they will never give you an exact time. It says somewhere between sort of, you know, five to ten and five past ten. Because the exact time is, death is not a moment. Unless you've been blown up or something, or you know, shot in the head. But most people, when they die, it takes time. The same with the rebirth process. It's a process, not an instant thing. So a lot of time, people have to, you know, unfinished business, first of all. We're going to go over time again, is that right? <laughs> you just look at it, it's not okay. I won't tell, I won't tell that story then. I can't resist it. There's, I think I did tell you about the, uh, the lady, she was a Thai lady with a Chinese husband. She never trusted him, so when she got very sick, she asked me, Ajahn Bam, can you arrange a funeral for me? Because I don't trust my stupid husband, George. And I said, Look. and she said, if you do, you, know, you get half of my estate. It wasn't, wasn't much, but it's still much more than the funeral cost. And so I can't make those deals. I'm a monk, so I told our committee, they said, they worked it out, I said, this is a really good deal, yeah, we accept. <laughs> so I arranged a funeral for her when she died. Everything was done well, but then half her estate, that was what you know, she would get. And I asked George, George, have you got the, the will? He said, I can't find the will. I don't know where she put it, it's disappeared. And we're Buddhists, so we don't pressure people. But then, about a month afterwards, he appeared early in the morning in a taxi all the way from Perth in Bodhinyana Monastery, early in the morning. And that costs a lot of money. I said, what are you doing, George? Ajahn Brahm, here's the will. Oh, you found it. How did you find it? And then he confessed. He knew where the will was all the time. But that last night... In the middle of the night, George, George, this is your wife here. Get the will for Ajahn Brahm now. <laughs> the ghost. And this is a true story. I've never seen him so scared. I've never seen anyone so scared. He couldn't give me that piece of paper, the will, soon enough. So this is be careful.
if you promise anything, sometimes you don't keep up that promise, sometimes the ghost will keep you honest and come, Eileen, Eileen, <laughs> you, you promised to do this. <laughs> so that's what happens after one's death. One does what one can to finish one's duties and then afterwards I can take rebirth. A public thank you for sharing your characters with me again. To have a teacher who supports me as through thick and thin, it's only through thick, not through thin, <laughs> and takes every opportunity to show deep unconditional care in many small and large ways is a blessing too great to fathom. Thank you. I'm sure if we don't extinguish in this lifetime, all of us here will get in mind in the future life with a short, pithy teaching like Bahia. Remember they are all due to having been conditioned by Ajahn Brahm's wisdom and kindness at Jarnagrove. It's not me. It's Ajahn Shah. I, I blame Ajahn Shah more than anybody. You know one of the first times in Singapore I gave a very big talk. That was in the uh, Suntech City in the auditorium there. SARS. Yeah, during the SARS time, yeah. But I remember you'd arranged, everything was arranged there, and I remember walking in in the evening, and the place, I think it was the last time, that was packed, about three or four thousand people. And I thought, my goodness, they're coming to listen to me. How can I do this? Because if I say something wrong or so, something not inspiring, all these people have wasted their evening. And I, that gave me a moment of just feeling a lot of pressure. And afterwards I thought, I'm not going to give the talk tonight. Everything which I teach has been brainwashed into me by people like Ajahn Chah. So Ajahn Chah is going to give the talk tonight. So I spoke, but as I was speaking, my perception was that it was all brainwashed conditioned by my teachers. And straight away that took away all fear no worry, it's a good talk or a bad talk. It's not my job, it's my teacher's job. And that's how actually how I um, dealt with those things. And so a lot of times, you know, if, if you ever give a, a talk over in UK, Venerable Chanda, so it, I, I'm giving the talk, not you. <laughs> so you have no responsibility. But if it's a bad talk, you can blame me. All that does is relaxes you. And that's very accurate. That's what, what happens. Dear Ajahn Brahm, how much should we read into synchronicities or are they mere coincidences? I think there's another question like that. <laughs> no. Is it? <laughs> it doesn't really matter, but I mean, I've seen it cannot be coincidences. Sometimes the synchronicities happen too often, but most things are coincidences. But every now and again something happens. As if, like, you know, you and your friends or your family or something, you are just um, tuning into one another. And there's a resonance there. And that's why the same thing happens or the same question happens. Sorry? Is it possible to observe Nimitus? <laughs> During, I'm almost there. 
doing other forms of meditation, e.g. meta meditation, yes, body sweeping meditation, yes. Or what I said today, okay, this is I will I'll leave the three questions for tomorrow. But as I said today, for those of you who went to, to Bodhinyana Monastery for lunch, are you in there? Did you see Atumamari at lunch? <laughs> there was something sitting in his seat. <laughs> because somebody offered us a skeleton you know, a skeleton to contemplate uh, you know, for you know, what the body is so they offered us that skeleton and one of the monks okay, I confess, on my instructions <laughs> put it in Ajahn Bamadi's seat because he wasn't here today he was in town doing a ceremony so I said to him, there's Ajahn Bamadi there <laughs> there's a skeleton so, yeah, um, and I was telling, I've got a, not a skeleton, actually I've got, I've got two skulls in my room. I've got two skulls. One of those skulls is, you know, it's a real skull, it's about 300 years old, so I was told. And I've got another skull in there as well, in my room, which is 71 years old. <laughs> but sometimes you meditate on the skull, you put it in front of you, and you visualize it, it's supposed to do it because you get some, uh, like a borrowers, this is all the a face, all the head is, it's just a skull with a bit of skin on the outside. But then, as I say, that all these things turn out to be something beautiful after a while. That's actually what happens. You look at the skull, sometimes I did that trying to find out something to repel me from the human condition, but after a while it appears so beautiful this little skull I've had for years. I'm not talking about mine, I'm talking about the one which is 300 years old. And you close your eyes, it turns into an imiter. And that's very common with, with a meditation on things like that. It starts off, you think it's going to be unpleasant and teach you a lesson to reject the human bodies. But they get so beautiful. And that nimitta gives you so much joy and happiness that it can take it into a jhana pretty easy. So yes, it can do. So they say, what image leads into meditation, into med, uh, nimittas and jhanas? All meditation does, it just turns into something beautiful. And you just let, let it happen and bliss out. I deserve happiness. I deserve happiness. <laughs> That's not a joke. And you say that, that's what you remember. Okay? Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu! Ah, we have one of the original Sadhus here, Dhamma Wudo. And, you know, if you went to Bodhinyana Monastery and people offering food, then he was the one, he'd be downstairs in the kitchen somewhere and everybody could hear him upstairs. Sadu, sadu, sadu!